So I'm a little bit too busy today. I'm watching Darkwing Duck instead. I'm sorry. Uh, it's been a good show, but <laughs> it's funny because everyone's like, you you were sending me all that stuff today. You're like, oh look, they got Darkwing Duck and Gargoyles and stuff, and I'm like, man, I have this shit on DVD from like five years ago when I wanted to watch this. <laughs> yeah. Then I kept going through it, and it's like, uh, yeah, but then we have Ducktales, and we have we have everything on there. Tailspin, um, the Rescue 90s. Rangers, yeah, it's got. Uh, They've got all the classic Disney shows and shit that we grew up watching as 90s babies and stuff. And we'll insert the whole Dark Week Duck theme song instead of uh, us talking. Uh, do it, man. I am ready to get dangerous. Let's get dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I love those shows, and that's what I've, I've done recently as well. I mean, that's like my whole TV section shelf at home here is that it's all those uh, old shows, those nostalgic shows that I grew up watching because that's what makes me feel comfy and keeps me from being a sad boy. <laughs> I'm glad that Ezra gets to experience some of my childhood because I don't have access to some of those things. So. Right. Well, and it's it's nice to go back and see how much it still kind of holds up, especially at such a low cost to you. I had to spend like the $40 or whatever it was in the DVD set. I'm like, dear God, I hope this yeah. is good as it is. But I've got lots of those, like just as recently as well. I, uh, you know, I got the new Batman Beyond Blu-ray set to go with the animated series one as well which has been really nice and i've been revisiting that uh during all of this as well so it's kind of in the same vein here we've on talked disney we talk plus so far uh, it's not very accessible we're on first day we're recording on um on a tuesday so uh, you could you could kind of search for things and sometimes it will load the sections in Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't gotten to personally look around at it, but I'm seeing everything that you're talking about and telling me, and it it does sound a lot like most other streaming user uh, user faces out there. Yeah, interfaces. Um, and just the the facet that all the categories are very lame and they don't give you everything you want. Like there hasn't been a single streaming service so far, I think, that has had a good way of searching through the library. Amazon works very well for me, but this is more just like categories of things. Um, yeah. Like a, like your friend Sean was pointing out, you could look through it and you'll get um, every Star Wars movie except two of them. It's that's, there's that's like a, a weird, weird thing. cutoff point where it wants to fit other things in besides what the category is. Well, the other thing as well is I, I agree with you totally that Amazon probably has the best way to search because even though they, they still have a category system as well, their categories don't overlap near as much. Uh, you know, I think this is more comparable to the Netflix issue where you have the mm -hmm. same five movies that exist in every single category. Totally, like, yeah. Like, for some reason, the war and romance genres just have so much crossover, which makes no sense. In <laughs> um, here, you'll see that, yeah, yeah, Toy Story or whatever will fit in every category or something. And then uh, it's... I feel like the selection's really good. Uh, for day one, I don't think we've ever had a better selection. Um, I'm very impressed uh, by what they fit in there. I'm sure there's more coming. Um, especially this week is a weird week because we just had Apple Plus, which I've checked out the last few days as well. I've watched the pilots for every show now. Yeah, you've uh, been looking at that for the site here. I think you're you're trying to check out all the streaming services and see what's up for us here and giving us our best... Uh, rundown uh, how is apple overall you think in comparison um it's completely different in that it's not like a show f or like a it's not like a stage for anything else there's like the five shows that you want to watch and then there's no outside stuff that's involved so 
you're really just subscribing to see like Steve Carell and Jennifer Aniston do a morning show or uh, or Jason Mama do the uh, blind man show. Mm, so um, it's all like just strictly new content, unlike um, you yeah. know we've got Disney here and HBO, who you know they're rolling out theirs next year as well. Where there it's these huge back catalogs is a major part of the incentive for them. And I think that's interesting too that they're banking on getting you to get Apple TV on your TV for five dollars a month, uh, the lowest entry fee of any of those, but also very little content. Um, right. Their space show. Uh, for all mankind is really interesting about Russians getting to the moon first in an alternate history. Mm-hmm. It's interesting prospect, certainly. It sounds like, and everyone you know loves the uh, the space race stuff. It's still an interesting topic to discuss. Even you know we're on fifty years after the first landing on the moon now this year. And I think that's brought back a lot of the discussions between like first man Apollo at Astra. Uh, for all mankind, we're getting a lot of revisions revisionized history on what it looked like and what it means now mm-hmm. uh, I think yeah it's interesting space seems to be coming back into vogue so uh, it's something exciting there but I agree with you that the the price point though it is the lowest with Apple may not be enough to incentivize no. you if it's like five dollars for five shows I mean I don't really know what's coming in like a month I don't see why you wouldn't just wait one month and watch all these shows when they're complete and then cancel and then you know It'll be like Shudder. You do it one month of every year. Right. Well, that's the that's the thing we you wonder as well with how much the cost is versus uh, now they're starting to put things out on a you know weekly basis again, like Disney's doing that with Mandalorian right. and its other shows, uh, like uh, just entirely abandoning the Netflix formula here. So which... I want to give I want to give huge props to both of them for pushing 4K and HDR. Though uh, mm-hmm. they have the largest selections of high end video quality content of any service so they are doing us a public service in some way by upping that game but i'm seeing tons of technical issues with both of them so also the videos are pausing and airing out i had to restart for all mankind at least six times and that's like over a week after lunch oh i know you said you had uh, issues with uh, searching for things in disney plus as well because you just said oh, that yeah. the, the bandwidth isn't big enough at the moment for how how many people just jumped on board day one here Oh, yeah. I'm sure all that will load up, and we'll have more on that next week. I'm sure we'll go deeper in once... uh, We'll probably have some Star Wars impressions, which should be fun. Yeah, hopefully we'll have more interest on that. And just general, I don't know, I I imagine you're going to get a huge nostalgia kick going through those shows, and you can talk more in depth about the ones you have there. I think uh, we'll we'll open up with a little bit more heavier Disney Plus discussion next week once we've had the full week to kind of go through and look at everything there. Darkwing Duck. (laughs) <laughs> Let's get dangerous. Welcome to the Twin Geekcast with Calvin and David. If you're looking for average podcast fare, you're barking up the wrong tree, fella. This week we have the Invisible Man, Sonic, the Irishman, Midway, Jojo Rabbit, Last Christmas. The best film podcast anytime, anyplace, Any place, anywhere. anywhere. Yeah, yeah, we know, Calvin. Look, this week our feature film is going to be His Girl Friday, the 1940 screwball comedy classic from director Howard Hawks. It stars Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell, Ralph Bellamy. It's great. It's hilarious. Get over here and listen already. God! So you watched the Invisible Man trailer? I did. Uh, I knew I was going to have to because, you know, if we're talking Invisible Man on the podcast, I won't hear the end of it from you, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you know how much I fell for that Universal one. Uh, We did the podcast a couple weeks ago, and I was super high on it. And I Mm -hmm. like this director because 
they did upgrade a couple of years ago. Right, it was that film with a uh, not Tom Hardy in it that uh, you enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I really think that they could bring something more more energy into like a modern take on it because they're looking at more of a grounded format for what Invisible Man could be in the modern times. Well, that's definitely the thing. From the trailer, you get the impression, and one of the like like small things I was kind of like, I'm like, hmm, you know, maybe this seems just a little odd to me by calling it the Invisible Man because it's so clearly seems to not be about him. It it looks nothing like the Universal film. It's a totally different, a hundred percent, you know, completely different take here on it, and it's more of like a regular kind of. Uh, suspense thriller with a supernatural mm. edge to it here and it's entirely focused on the kind of cool scenario and set pieces you can think of trying to escape this invisible murderer effectively i think we have a pretty cool year for horror coming up because we have the grudge by uh, um nicholas Pesci, which should be pretty cool because uh, he did piercing which i really liked and then have this right after the blumhouse and um i think i think this could work out for them. I don't feel like the mummy worked in a certain way that this probably could. It has Elizabeth Moss at the center. She looks really good. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone in the world thought that the mummy worked on any level, and it was just a bad idea from the beginning there. This approach, while nothing like the Universal take, seems like it's going to be an interesting piece on its own. Like, it doesn't yeah. seem to... That's interesting here because it says in the credits that it's based on the Wells novel, but nothing, not a single thing in the trailer indicated to me anything from the source material there. Yeah, um, I could see it has a lot of the darkness. I don't see any of the comedy in it. Mm-hmm. No, I don't, and I don't see anything from the character's perspective at all in the trailer. It looks entirely from Moss's character's perspective there, so it's just oh, yeah. it's more of a survival story and a and a you know, kind of meta commentary, or not meta, but just a commentary about, uh, you know, uh, being stuck in an abusive relationship and unable to kind of escape that. And that level of uh, interesting uh, social discussion that's, you know, at the core of it here seems to give the film a bit more legs, you know. I feel like it has something pretty obvious, like the ghost of the physical relationship stays with her even after the uh, relationship's passed on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and even it definitely feels like you're still threatened by that the trauma of an abusive mm-hmm. relationship. There's something to it there, and I think that's an interesting angle to go with this supernatural, uh, you know, thriller story here, effectively, which seems like way more interesting than what they probably would do otherwise. Uh, even though it, I can't see them not making a franchise still if, they, if this yeah. ends up being successful, they're not going to yeah. stop here. No, they can't. Um, I don't feel like this could figure into any other stories. So, in the sense of like a dark universe, um, I think this could only lead to a sequel potentially. But uh, I don't well, that feel was, like it has a lot of crossover. Well, that was basically the case with the Invisible Man and the Universal Days too. Earlier, I mean, he wasn't in any of the House of Frankenstein or whatever movies. Right. He was, you know, he was in his own thing, and he had a couple of sequels. But he was largely like, because even back then, you're like, how do you fit the Invisible Man into the story here? I guess you could think of a way, but Claude Rains, I think at that time, just became such a big name. Like so soon after the Invisible Man, like it wasn't easy to rope him back in. He was too busy running off to do Casablanca and Hitchcock movies. Yeah, it would have been a Claude Rains birthday yesterday, today. Uh, it was recent. I think it was yesterday. Yeah. So, yeah. I really like Claude Rains, and uh, oh. that was just a remarkable story for me. Uh, I think it would have looked pretty... Uh, I don't think it could have compared to 
do the tech today just wouldn't be that impressive because we have you know CGI, CGI that much yeah. better. I mean, we've uh, already gotten takes on that and you know visible things like the yeah the technical uh, impressiveness of it isn't there. So you got to do something different. And I think this is the right step. This this trailer, like I didn't have any interest in an Invisible Man movie in any capacity, but then when I sat down and watched the trailer, I'm like, you know what? I would probably watch this. I think this looks interesting, and I think it can get people out there, especially with our big horror boom that we're going on with still. Um, speaking of horror boom, you saw the new Sonic trailer? Yeah, less horrifying for sure. Um, there was the huge controversy with the original Sonic trailer. It got so much backlash for that awful, awful image of Sonic. Uh, and I looked at the comparisons today too, and I'd forgotten just how awful he was with his weird... Uh, like unshapen body and like you know regular sneakers and human teeth uh, it was just this nightmarish thing but now they, they they took all that backlash and they said they're gonna work on it they pushed the, the release date back four months and now we've got the trailer and poster for the redesign to look more like classic Sonic and it looks good now and the voice acting I think is different too but I didn't I watch think the- it's a Great shame that he'll miss this Oscar season, but otherwise, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm usually against it if they're going to go back and respond to like fan feedback. I'm kind of like, do what your vision is. But when your vision's that grotesque and horrifying, <laughs> I think this is the right move. No, it was a hundred percent the right move, and I appreciate seeing that when you see the a response to that in a positive way. It doesn't always work out well. Mostly, it doesn't. You know, uh, no. but. You know, when you cave into pressure like that, that mob pressure. But in this case, it was very justified. And, you know, I think there was obvious reasoning for the backlash. It wasn't just people being angry for no reason. There was there was definitely plenty of good reason to not like this design that they went with. And the new one is, is much better. And the trailer overall <laughs> looks much more appealing because of this. I'm like, you know what? It it, it it allows to be highlighting the, the facets of the film that do look more interesting, like, you know, Carrie as Eggman. And some of the comedy isn't too bad in it. I, I, well, there was, like, a latte bit in there in the trailer with uh, Jim Carrey. That was pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, some of the comedy wasn't so bad. It, I mean, they took it and moved it closer to what you'd expect from, like, a modern... Uh, I mean, I guess a modern animated film like Detective Pikachu... Yeah, I think that's a an apt comparison there. Um, it does seem like it will be mildly entertaining now <laughs> with some with some highlighted moments, as opposed to just a really insufferable thing throughout. Like, uh, but but honestly, even if this wasn't their uh, intention and it cost them a lot of money, I think it's going to make them a lot of money in the end making this correction yeah. because all of the horrible grotesque design there got it so much buzz and recognition that now this new transformation is going to piggyback off of that and make people actually interested. Like, like now that we have that comparison, this seems better just by oh, default yeah. there. If they just came out with this version right away, nobody would have cared. Nobody would have no. seen the Sonic this, film. This would have been kind of what you expected them to do anyway, but now there's a lot of buzz around, okay, they went and did something good. This is where we find out in 10 years that this was a genius marketing ploy and they put out this <laughs> shitty version first and then pushed the date back, you know, to you'd create this idea. <laughs> you'd think Sonic's so low stake because it, it's had so many bad video games since the Dreamcast that uh, uh, a lot of the releases have been pretty low effort. So you'd think the fan base wouldn't really care. But then 
uh, it kind of plays into some of the meme potential that Sonic has. So uh, I think that that really bad take on it actually. People have always complained about bad Sonic takes, and that's part of what made the series so weird and divisive. Is mm-hmm. uh, people care about the color of his eyes? I mean, they care about the most minute details. So when you make him look like a fucking uh, hedgehog goblin, of course people are going to care. It's weird that Sonic has so much uh, love and attraction, and uh, I don't know how much of that comes from uh, the, the kind of weirder side of the fan base. Sonic famously <laughs> has uh, some uh, very uh, sexually motivated fans my across the internet. Game, by the way. <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is my first game when I was uh, four years old. I that, thought you were going to say it was your first myself. fantasy or something. That would have been weird. That too. <laughs> mm, no, that was, about, that was about Knuckles a couple of years later. But we should uh, <laughs> we should look at some new films. So. Yeah, we'll get it. We'll, we'll get to reviewing Sonic more when we go out to see it. I think. In the meantime, let's talk about uh, what's new here right now because there's uh, a lot. We have a lot to talk about this week, actually. I could talk about the Irishman for the first time. Um, yes, thank <laughs> you. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm excited to hear about it. It's it's sad because we had other people like Graham got to go see it in between the time that you saw the early screening and before the uh, you could talk about it, which is unfair. <laughs> I saw it at the end of last month, and then uh, yeah, then Graham got public screening and could talk about it. But now I'm freed from my embargoed cage, and now I have the hottest take of all on the Irishman. Uh, let's um, hear it. I'm excited. It's a long movie. <laughs> that it is. It's. I think it's Scorsese's longest at this point. It's like three and a half hours. Yeah, three Which and is, a half we're talking, hours. It... This is like a Lawrence of Arabia of uh, gangster movies at this point. This is... Uh, yeah, Godfather 2 isn't even this long. <laughs> and the or, good you know, thing is my, might... my review is going up on the site with this, so I could cross-reference that. Um, my feeling about it is it's kind of the the end of an age of gangster picture that we used to get mm-hmm. in, in your review you were uh you compared it to once upon a time in the west which seems like a very appropriate idea there this uh great epic sweeping uh culmination of a great director's work uh defining the genre and kind of putting his official stamp on the end of it uh that seems very appropriate to me um, it's very funny to me because, of course, famously De Niro played an Irishman in um, Goodfellas, uh, an Irish gangster, and then he comes in and plays the Irishman here. He's the least fucking Irish person that Scorsese's ever worked with. I know. I actually he's very Italian. When when you when you read it uh, when you wrote that in your review, you, you know, previously you know played an Irishman here. I literally had to look up if Jimmy Conway was Irish because I'm like I don't recall if he's Irish in that movie. He was he right. Doesn't yeah, no he is. You were okay, right yeah. with that, but I I genuinely questioned it. I had to double check when I was editing. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Joe Pesci of course comes out of retirement. De Niro had to talk him into it. They talked three four times trying to just push him out of his unformal retirement um i guess they recruited a lot of guys from like mafia facebook groups and every time pesci would walk on set they'd all be applauding and (laughs) i could just see him like a bunch of italian guys standing on set being like our legend just walks in and he's like this mob boss that calls back to like the greatest days of like crime pictures and man it's such a celebration of that uh al pacino plays jimmy hoffa um as robert de niro is frank sheeran uh, I should know. Uh, actually, possibly the character's related to Ed Sheeran, so that's is a he? weird note. Is he? That is actually weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he plays Frank Sheeran, who 
was working with the mafia and the Teamsters through um, a lot of union dispute disputes. They'd go and like take out large businesses that wouldn't comply with union regula- regulations. While uh, Jimmy Hoffa, Al Pacino's character, was like in charge of the Teamsters and getting everyone together to work for the truck drivers and make sure everyone was established. Uh, Sheeran had just come out of his time from World War II, and he comes in and he wants to, you know, work with someone. He's very, very loyal. Um, it's just a classic mob setup, and it uses that de-aging technology, I'd say fairly sparingly. I'd say it doesn't spend that much time considering we're there for four hours on the stuff that's really computer-looking. If you're interested for more stuff on Hoffa, there's actually a pretty good uh, biopic of him uh, from uh, Jack Nicholson as as Hoffa. It was directed by uh, Dane DeVito, and it's got a script from David Mamet. Oh, sweet. Um, That's got to be good with the Mamet script. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's been a long time Um, since I've seen it. I'd say almost everything works technologically around the Irishman. There's like all this talk like it would look really, you know, jarring. Of course, people look kind of rubbery, plasticky occasionally. But uh, the acting behind it's so good. The gliding cameras, Scorsese, its movement is full-on impressive. It's it's a gorgeous film. Oh, that, that moving camera is such a signature Scorsese thing as well. He's so adept at, uh, you know, moving around in sequences and, you know, very... Uh, controlled and how he operates the camera i love it so much especially you know seeing a lot more of that in the rewatch i'm going through with every film uh now trying to finish up that filmography before we do our whole breakdown uh beginning of next month there's just a scene where de niro's slowly moving through an alley in a black car and the camera like lovingly just gracefully slides along with the car and over the car and it's it's weird how he can make such a subtle in-between moment. Most people would cut matter so much. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I'd look forward to discussing even more once I've seen it as well. Uh, hopefully this upcoming weekend I aim to. We'll see. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you can't tell, I love it a lot, and I think it's going to go down as a classic of 2019, and people will remember this movie. And It's not just like a blip in the radar. I think this is uh, the most significant movie that Netflix had made, so I think it's really important. Hold on, hold on, more significant than Other Side of the Wind? Um, I don't think Netflix really made that movie, right? Like, they funded the production of getting right. it, you know, put on their All service. Right. That's fair. I, just I mean, like, pull. from the ground up, <laughs> right? <laughs> Netflix I just never, wanted had to... me- never had yeah. a meeting with Orson Welles, right? So. Oh, I mean, lots of people involved in finishing up didn't have a meeting with Orson Welles, but True. I just, I wanted to, to clarify the distinction there so we don't go off, you know, on record, you know, dismissing that. That's a very significant film, and I'm going to stand up here and talk about it as much as I can. Okay, um, so <laughs> uh, apart from Other Side of the Wind, I think these two really pack a punch for the service and give it actually some legs to stand on as far as... Uh, what they're doing for classic films and actual filmmaking, uh, right. they've really stepped away from like their partnerships with like Marvel and uh, trying to get like superhero replications on their service, and they've really went all in on cinema. So I'm impressed with Netflix. Well, hopefully they'll be able to stay afloat. Uh, you know, the pricing thing we talked about earlier with like Apple and Disney is going to be yeah. a big combatant. So I wonder if Netflix will budge on that, but we'll it's- see uh, how that goes. Hopefully they manage to stay afloat and. They don't just, uh, you know, keep going down the same path. You know, they've been the, the juggernaut for the long time now, but they've got to adapt as well. Yeah, yeah, they'll have to adapt or die. Um, 
I think this kind of movie is the right way to go because um, in some way for them, the Oscars are just advertisements to get people to stay on their service because they're going to have Marriage Story and Irishman and I got their release with about 20 other awards nominations they have coming. So uh, Netflix is going as hard as anyone. They're a major Hollywood player now. That's a reality. Yeah, yeah I think that's well, certainly the case. And uh, it's it's kind of a shame. And, you know, I, I guess it, it also speaks from Scorsese here, you know, as well, saying that he's had to go this route because theaters are such a impractical way. You know, regular studios yeah. aren't, aren't the way anymore. You can see them dying off because they're being pushed to the the edges like that but you know thank god for people like netflix and other places like amazon still giving a voice to the smaller people and hopefully they can expand and grow bigger and uh, the field can get leveled out once again eventually i'm also grateful for uh taiki watiti for giving a voice to hitler <laughs> you mean in a literal sense here since he plays hitler yeah absolutely <laughs> what a brave move by the way <laughs> I mean, it's it's not uh, an uncommon thing. We've been poking fun at Hitler for years and years and years now in you know parodic performances, uh, mm. and it's just I just appreciate that we're carrying on that canon of uh, Nazi satire here. Uh, how is I think Jojo it's Rabbit? So <laughs> oh yeah, uh, Jojo Rabbit. Since it won't okay, die right? apparently. <laughs> yeah, I think Jojo Rabbit's okay. I mean, I don't think a, I don't think the trailers exactly show you what it is. Which is like this boy is hiding uh, this Jewish girl in his house. Uh, uh, Jojo and Elsa are the main characters. And um, I'd say ScarJo and Watiti are really what sell the performance, but they're, they're such minor parts, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It seemed very, uh, I don't know, the, the vibe I got off of it from various impressions of the trailers that it looks like, I think it was a kind of identified as like a Wes Anderson y take on fascism. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a weird place to be, I think. Uh, it's been sold as the anti-hate satire. I think it's just a pro-love comedy. I think that's my take. That's yeah, an interesting, uh, like, inverse perspective on it, where they basically arrive at the same conclusion, but through different ways. Mm. Uh, and so that sounds uh, pretty interesting. Perhaps not the master class of comedy we are all hoping for, but sounds uh, like a delightful addition to our, you know, canon of Hitler humor. I think it's I think it's pretty middle middle high road for that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I don't think it's quite as good as Death of Stalin. Did you like that one? I did. I did like Death of Stalin a lot. I thought that one was very fun. Uh, I wish that we get a Blu-ray release over here. That's crazy that we can only get it on DVD in the states. I think that one's more formally satire. I think it's a great shame that we really don't have a Blu-ray of that because that's a really yeah. important movie. Well, and then so many people are going to miss out on it. Like, it's it's basically out of the conversation now, which is a shame, because it's been one of the the better uh, political comedies, I think, of uh, quite some time. I mean, I don't even, you know, I'm, I'm not even on board with some of the cast. I mean, Sam Rockwell, we've seen him play racist so many times, so suddenly we're not surprised when he shows up as a Nazi captain. Or um, Rebel Wilson, I never like. And no, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I even got a laugh out of her when she shows up. And she's like, you know, I mothered eight German boys. And, you know, she has some good lines in it. Uh, ScarJo is very funny and very good on screen. Of course, she said she could play a tree, so she could play a Nazi mother. That's fine. Yeah, that makes sense as well. Uh, shame about 
Sam Rockwell that he's getting typecast as a racist now. <laughs> he but, said a, a couple months ago he's going to stop playing so many racists eventually. He should, he should, uh, because it's just it's too much, it's too common, and we're going to start thinking that he is a racist. <laughs> I know. what. How many have there been? There's been, like, Vice and... Um, what, what, three billboards? Yeah, There's three so billboards many. was a huge one. He won an Oscar for being a racist. <laughs> Best of Enemies, that that one? Yeah, there was a couple other. I think there was... Was that the one we talked about earlier this year? I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. yeah. That one All came right. and went real fast. What else do we have on the docket this week? You saw a lot this week, Calvin. Oh, my God. Um, we have... Uh, do we want to do Midway? Yeah, just go ahead and briefly talk about it. Uh, okay. What, what you remember from it, anyway. <laughs> So Midway's top of the charts, but also a failure. Um, it's the Veterans Day celebration of uh, the Pearl Harbor event. Um, it's very straight, like recreation, like recreational uh, filmmaking. Um, I'm not that interested in it. It's at least more real than Pearl Harbor. Did you say? Did you say that Midway is about Pearl Harbor? Um, yeah, it's about I, the whole. Event. I I don't think that's the case. I think it's about the Battle of Midway because those are two different things. Sorry, I mean, it's about the Pearl. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's about what? I'm just going to cut this whole thing. So the no. <laughs> problem is that I fell asleep during Midway. And so you just got it confused. You're like, you thought that Midway was about Pearl Harbor instead. Is it really not at all about Pearl Harbor? Pearl no, Harbor. no. Midway was its own significant battle in the, uh, in the Pacific. It was a huge turning point for the war. Okay, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you can't cut this out. That's not fair to me. This is funny. <laughs> can we at least start it over here? <laughs> you could just say you slept through and got them mixed up. Fine, you could you start it over, I guess. <laughs> so I saw uh, this movie called Midway. Midway? What's it yeah. about? Um, you know, Midway. The The... Battle of Midway? Uh, you know, like Pearl Harbor, Midway. Like Pearl Harbor, but Midway? So I thought it was originally about Pearl Harbor, <laughs> but obviously it's about Battle of Midway, which is later on, right? Yeah, I think the title kind of uh, was a hint towards that. I mean, some of it's <laughs> referring to stuff like the Pearl. Of course, you're going back to like the same place, and uh, you know, there's a lot of referencing for what happened there. Do they go by Iwo Jima at all? What was that? Do they go by Iwo Jima? Do they do that bit too? Which bit? I Iwo Jima, you know, where they plant the... Oh. They took the island and they plant the in the flag in there. Yeah, this movie is about uh, Iwo Jima 9-11. <laughs> uh, are, you, are you familiar with 9-11? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I remember that. That's, uh, that's when they took down the Berlin Wall, right? Right. That's when um, planes crashed into the Berlin Wall and then we went to <laughs> Afghanistan, I believe. It sounds about right. <laughs> Very interesting that they'd mix up history like this because seems really disrespectful on Veterans Day. <laughs> you know, I'm, I've got a feeling that nap might have been actually a little longer than you thought. And you dreamed a lot of what happened here. <laughs> it sounds like a crazy dream for sure. <laughs> I did fall asleep for a long time. This is a new Roland Emmerich film, so I I feel like we're at least we're giving it serious discussion. Yes, it's important to highlight the. Uh, artistic integrity of Roland Emmerich's work. <laughs> He's one of our most important contemporary directors. I love uh, what he, he said last <laughs> week that, uh, of course, Marvel art cinema, because I was just cracking up, like, what does I'm, he think he makes? 
I was like, yes, uh, I, certainly Independence Day Resurgence was one of the, the greatest <laughs> films of the last decade. <coughs> um, yeah, this is a bad movie, man. <laughs> Not that it, you would know, I guess, because you don't I guess even know I what happened. I through a bit of it. Um, then I went and got coffee, which was a lot better. That's good. The coffee was good at least. Can you give me a review yeah. of the coffee? Uh, it was black and tasted kind of acidic. Like battery acid. Oh, that sounds very wonderful way to describe coffee. <laughs> it was better than the movie, so there's that. Well, there, there it, you have it. It was just such a bore. I mean, even like Dennis Quaid, Woody Harrelson couldn't even really keep it afloat. It it just has so many holes in the story. Mm-hmm. Like those ships at Pearl Harbor. Right. <laughs> the event <laughs> that it's totally based on. <laughs> and. I'm glad we really paid respect to the veterans. Uh, thanks right, for your right. service. I'm, I'm going to save you here. I'm going to give you some reprieve from this uh, disaster. And you can tell me about the one film you did pay attention to that we got left here. Last you Christmas. Were... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, a film I could stay awake for. Um, yes. And I had already guessed the plot of this at least four months ago. So. That's a good place to be. Are you going to watch this movie? No, I don't even think I watched a trailer or anything. Oh. I know very little. Was this the, uh, I don't know, was it the Bill Hader one or something? Or was there, is that something else I'm thinking of? No. There's so many no. of these Christmas movies. What is this one? This is the, that's the one where Bill Hader plays Santa Claus. This one's about uh, the, what's her name, the, the girl from the, What's it called? Lord of the Rings? Game of the Rings? Oh, Amelia Clark. Amelia Clark, the Game of the Rings girl. She uh, she plays this Christmas girl who's, uh, you know, she works at a Christmas shop. She works for an Asian woman named Santa. She dresses like an elf. Um, Did you say Asian woman named Santa? Yeah. She, Amelia Clark thinks her name is Santa, but really it's just like her role oh, in the shop. That's it's really Michelle funny. Yeoh as Santa. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Michelle, that yeah. just an Asian woman. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My reviews are getting worse as this podcast goes on. Are you a little drunk, Calvin? Do you need some yeah. more coffee? <laughs> um, I thought Amelia Clark was fine. I, this movie just—it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. And and I'm assuming you liked it because this is the kind of schmaltzy Christmas crap that you're really into. Yeah, it was very schmaltzy, and um. I don't really know. Like, Henry Golding plays the, the guy next to her who's... Uh, just fast forward if you don't want to know. He's an imagined guy. He's dead when the movie starts, which is exactly what I thought would happen. I'm glad you gave them enough time. Not that anyone's going to actually care about being spoiled about Last Christmas. <laughs> I mean, if you've heard the song... Um, I mean, it's pretty obvious when she comes into the frame and she has, like, the George Michaels stamp on her um, on her suitcase. You know what's going to happen there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see uh, we have famous grand director Paul Feig here in yeah. charge of this film. How's he doing? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> he's, uh, he's always just setting the charts ablaze and really making provocative, fascinating work. Yes, um, uh, true cinema, as we all like to say here. <laughs> he's, right. He's setting the bar really high for all our modern directors. He really is. Ever since Ghostbusters 2016, he's really, really the, been on the, a on a tear. You mean you mean Ghostbusters, the feminist masterpiece? Yeah, Ghostbusters, the feminist masterpiece, <laughs> 2016. Uh, 
really really remarkable you see uh bill murray signed on for the new one possibly yeah for for the new new one that's how great this last one was is that they decided to discard everything and just start over again that's how good it was (laughs) right it was so good uh i thought uh what was this movie last year the simple man simple simple plan i don't know i mean unless he's doing something with wes anderson i'm pretty checked out for bill murray no i mean uh, uh paul feig Oh, oh, yeah. Hold on, I got distracted, though, because I saw that Bill Murray's in Zombieland 2. Oh. So, he did two zombie movies this year, because he did Dead Don't Die as well. (laughs) I was going to say, he's done two comedy zombie movies. This year, that's the only things he's done this year. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of hilarious. Yeah. But no, Paul Feig, uh, what was the other thing he did that I was supposed to say something on? A simple plan, a simple favor. Uh, it was something you. I think you liked that. It was more like a dramatic thing. Yeah, a simple I can't favor. Even yeah, remember that, if I a simple it favor. Or something. Some somebody did. I remember hearing some buzz about it and some interest. It it's got uh, Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively. Uh, no, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say no. No, I didn't see this. I didn't even remember it. So no, that seems fair. Uh, pretty middle of the road, and it was. Uh, a pretty funny movie, though. A pretty funny thriller. So That's good. All right. Uh, I think we've about exhausted the box office this weekend since Have your we? memory's your memory's fading anyway, so we, we should probably get on to the film we just watched before it leaves your mind. Okay. <laughs> what did we watch? We watched His Girl Friday. You already forgot? Yeah. <laughs> His Girl Friday, Howard Hawks, screwball comedy classic. Uh, it's hilarious. So funny, so funny. Um... I don't even know how to start with this one, other than, um, what do you think of it, Calvin? It's one of the funniest, fastest-talking movies of all time. I think it probably is the fastest-talking, and for a 90-minute movie, it must have the longest script of any one of those. I actually I actually pulled up the information here, because there's a little bit of trivia in the IMDb section that talks about it. Somebody apparently clocked the film, mm-hmm. and it's it goes at, like, its fastest times at about 240 words a minute. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's impressive. And, just for context, like regular dialogue is about like this is like about ninety words a minute. So mm-hmm. that's that's insanely fast. There's actually I told you as well, if you get the Criterion disc for His Girl Friday, there's a feature that compares the speed of the dialogue of this versus uh the earlier adaptation of the front page from nineteen thirty one. As like just plays like two scenes right next to each other that are almost identical, but the His Girl Friday one is just like almost twice as fast. I think twice as fast, maybe twice as good. I really enjoy this movie. I can confirm that it's twice as good, almost exactly, because, uh, you know, there's some early sound issues I still have, like, because in 1931, they're still coming around to sound at that point, so it's not as polished. Even this nice restoration that they have with the His Girl Friday disc, but also just in general, the the change to the material for His Girl Friday is, like, this most inspired decision, and it gives a greater le- a level of complexity to Hildy Johnson's character. Uh, you know, the, the stage play is very famous for its, its wit and its repartee, mm-hmm. and its... Uh, very funny dialogue. It's got a famous ending line. Uh, the son of a bitch stole my watch. It's a famous line that the film, uh, the play goes off on, and they have that in both the 1931 and the 1974 Billy Wilder version. But but both of them just can't compare. the The dynamic is not near as great. Even in the 74 version, when you have uh, comedy legends Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon together, it's just it's so not as good. 
And I had just seen uh, Dolomite Is My Name, where they sit in the white theater in Detroit, and they're like, why do these white people think Billy Wilder's so funny? Because front page, of course, not the best example of his. No, not even. He was very much on the downslope. And I think it was a it was a funny usage uh, there for Dolomite Is My Name, because it's this kind of perfect encapsulation of just how uh, kind of far gone Wilder's comedy sensibilities were in 74. I, I pointed out to and, you that ni- 1974 was the same year that Blazing Saddles came out. And so right. there's just a huge far cry of difference in terms of comedic sensibilities there. And I think it's just like the African-American community just feeling completely underserved by like this comedy where white people were just becoming overindulgent and weren't actually being funny anymore. Well, it's also, it's a total throwback to this kind of era here, you know, again, where his Girl Friday takes place as well, where it's uh, this, this very uh, kind of fast-paced, you know, wit-driven kind of mm-hmm. world and everything like that. And that's that's so much the sensibilities of the film. But uh, his Girl Friday managed to be really timeless despite it. We, we talked about, uh, I, I think the setting is still such an important aspect of it, the time at which it takes place one of the one of the favorite things i highlighted it to you this time around was the phones the old classic style <laughs> phones well the, it's not the uh, uh how do you what do you even call these phones do you know the name for them no they're the kind of phones that you hold to your ear and then talk in the other piece yeah there's a name for them and i'm just I'm, i don't even know what to search to figure it out but you know it's those those really old like kind of very basic phones and there's just great many sequences you know throughout like there's the whole scene where rosalind russell is running back and forth between like five different ones talking to people she's got to constantly (laughs) keep picking them up and and, like grabbing the ears for two of them and putting them back and forth it's it's a riot it's absolutely hilarious i can't it oh my god so if you haven't seen the movie you'll also know it by the famous get out gif where um he throws his arms out and you know he's just standing there carrie grant and his old like a, a trench coat and old hat yeah it's a it's, it's a GIF I see floating around the internet uh, a lot, but uh, one of the other really great things, I think, is that even if you haven't seen it, there's no excuse not to, because this is one of those lucky films that magically fell into public domain many, many mm-hmm. years ago, and so you will you can find a rip of it pretty easily, and not too shabby in quality uh, to watch. I know you watch yours on Amazon. Uh, yeah. Was that one pretty good, that quality? Yeah. yeah, the quality is fine. There was a couple parts where it broke up, but it's really fine. Yeah, and it's overall, it's uh, nice that we have those transfers available to us for those easy streaming options. So of all of these kind of uh, comedy classics, this one's going to be one of the most accessible and certainly the best you'll see. It's it's goddamn hilarious. <laughs> it's one of my favorite comedies. I think it's pretty inherent in the premise. <laughs> like, just the fact that Hildy comes in and she announces her retirement uh, uh, to her editor, who... And he's like, well, what on what grounds? And it's like, well, she has to go get divorced from him. It's very funny, just like the premise and setup of that. Well, and that's why it's such a, that kind of divorce-marriage dynamic is such a, a staple of screwball comedies of the time. You get your mm-hmm. similar scenarios with, like, the Philadelphia story and the awful truth, and uh, both of which are also Cary Grant films. Uh, you know, he's very common in these, and he's such so great at it. Cary Grant's one of just the best comedic actors I think we've ever seen. So the switch, I don't think, I don't know if we actually discussed what it was, but there's like the gender flip in here where she's like the hard boiled newsman and then he's the one that's just getting divorced and left behind. Yeah, so in the original version, it, you still got the same character names, which is also another remarkable thing is that they could just so seamlessly take 
Hildy Johnson as a man and just <laughs> swap it to a woman without even bothering with the name change. And so this they say, script- oh, you're you're a great newsman, and she's like, yeah, but I want to go be a woman. Yeah, well, and that's a great thing is that there's some lines like that where they don't change, but they add on. They add that, yeah, I want to be a woman line, which kind of gives again that that putting her in that setting in that male dominated world gives her character more complexity and more incentive to leave. The original on the right. front page, uh, Hildy is just a man, and he's like, I I'm just tired of this. I'm tired of the abuse from Walter and the toughness of the world here. So I'm gonna go off and I'm gonna get married, and that's the whole plot with him there. But with being a woman with this version here, there's so much more incentive because you feel her uh, you know your, her womanhood being suppressed effectively she's being pushed yeah. into this more masculine role and she clearly wants to be that she wants to settle down and wants to fulfill that role but she's still pulled between these two poles and it thinks it makes it more of an interesting dynamic yeah her husband like formally just has a working relationship where she's the best reporter that he has and he owns the Morning Post, right? And he wants the best work out of her that he could get. So uh, in, in a different way, in a subversion of everything that was happening where the woman's made to stay at home, this woman's made to just be a career woman and not live out like her you know, biological imperative to be a woman. Well, this thing is that in the beginning, she wants that. She wants to get away from Walter and that, you know, more masculine pushed lifestyle. She wants to settle down with uh, Ralph Bellamy's character and, you know, be a woman as, as she kind of idealizes and whatnot. And he, he's able, he's going to provide her that life. But Walter just keeps getting in the way just so he can get the <laughs> scoop on this great story. And it's it's very funny the different ways that uh, you see Grant try and uh, subvert that and do that. I think like you get the first moment of that when he... Uh, he picks up his phone. The phone rings, and he's like, "What? You know, you know, what do you mean you're you're gonna sick?" And the, you hear the guy on the other line. He's like, "That's not who I am." Whatever <laughs> the line is, he's obviously just on the fly thinking of these ways to try and rope her into doing this story so he can get her back. Uh, it, I think in, throughout in the beginning, you don't get the sense that he's doing it for romantic purposes necessarily, but by the end, that's very much what's kind of going on. Is that this is. Uh, a romance still in the idea that Walter is trying to win back his ex-wife. Yeah, it's still his girl Friday. I mean, there's still that element that's inherent in the story where um, they have a working relationship, but it's symbiotic with their romance that it would be inspired by the way that she is a journalist and what that means in a romanticized sense to him. Um, well, we talked a, a great little bit. I was going to say, there's that great bit, there's this idea that it's a tumultuous relationship still, it's a a love and hate one, where early on you're like, oh, they care for each other, but man, he drives her crazy, and he's, you know, he works her like a horse, and he's uh, somewhat emotionally abusive in these ways, there's that great line early on, I can't remember exactly now, because there's just so many that I get overflown with, but... um, where he, you know, he says something. If you want to be miserable, or you know, you know, just stuck in the same scenario, I, I just marry you, or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. I'll just marry, marry her again. again. Yeah, yeah, it's so great. <laughs> I love that it's improvisational because, like you say, he's trying to figure out on the fly all these kind of things they could do, and that works so well because all the a lot of the lines are being improvised, and sometimes characters are all acting at the same time and they're all talking. You'll get like three characters in one scene that are all delivering fast pitch <laughs> newspaper speak it's very interesting oh and that's such a product of howard hawks's incredible direction we've talked about him a bit before we had his uh, red river we talked about on the podcast but um you know he's just got this great penchant for dialogue uh for you know being able to 
communicate with the characters there in such a way and his direction is so clear and those sequences with them and going back and forth and his girl friday is probably the best demonstration of it because it's just it's so clear how they keep upping the the ante in terms of the speed and the character interaction and like you said they have just just really great chemistry together Cary grant and rosalind russell and they're stepping on each other's lines constantly and there's a lot of talking over each other which is really uh unheard of for this time you don't see that as much it's like an altman film almost in that aspect Mm -hmm. yeah where people are living out their lives like in in unison to a story going on like in the way that you live a real life people don't just stop so you could uh you know so you could express a narrative well you can see that you see how uh it comes across more naturalistic because of that like when Mm. when you have all the news reporters in the in the room and they're all relaying back to their their newspapers and they're almost all on top of each other screaming over about the story and their different takes on it their different spins which is very funny to hear like immediately after you've got uh, john queenland's characters captured and you hear all of the different takes in the way they said it he's like oh he was armed he was ready to go he was not armed and all the different entirely uh conflicting spins that they put on the story <laughs> i think it works out so well it has a great news speak in the story and a great um literacy for what a news program would look like uh, the way that all the journalists uh, from all the publications are formed together makes a lot of sense and they contrast well together uh, and they have a lot of colorful characters in them the news speak especially it's so good this is exactly what you think of when you think of those fast-talking newspaper reporters i don't know if you remember from uh way back one of the earlier podcasts we did we did uh the hudsucker proxy the coen brothers film yeah and uh jennifer jason lee's character there is such an inspiration taken from rosalind russell here with her very fast talking newspaper style and you can absolutely see that 100 percent. yeah i mean i think when i watch hudsucker proxy this is the movie i want to be seeing Mm-hmm. I, I definitely get that sense because those moments with Jennifer Jason Lee, they're the best moments <laughs> of the film. And this, even, this movie is just uh, an entire movie of that. Yeah, I mean, even just like the nonchalance of throwing someone out the window. Right. Well, there, there's so much of that. Again, I guess you can kind of have an homage to that because Hudsucker opens up with the, the guy jumping out the window and you've got that morbid moment where the, the woman does that here as well, which takes this new story, which leads in its own way to an interesting level of commentary. I think any good newspaper film needs to have that level of uh, journalistic commentary to it and how the uh, the consumption of media and sensationalism, uh, you know, something like uh, another Wilder film, Ace in the Hole, which really nails that. I really didn't like it originally that they just moved on, but I like the idea that you brought up that they would just move on from the story anyway because they only care about sensationalism and two minutes later someone jumps out the window, they care about something else. Well, the thing is that these reporters, they're so detached emotionally from everything. All they care about is getting the scoop, the story. So, you know, they've got so much of a bigger thing on their mind, even though this human tragically just died, jumped to her death here. Like, they're only concerned what it means to them. And for that moment, it blows up. It's this huge thing. It distracts all the, the other journalists in the room, and they immediately divert to doing that. But then it's such a fast moment gone from the film immediately it's almost as if you know the the story's telling you yeah this is a huge thing but only for a moment here and that's very reflective of uh kind of journalist journalism we see in life sensationalist media yeah you don't really get to live in any of the moments for very long uh i i think the pace works really well i i really love the film i was very aware that we wouldn't have very much to talk about with it oh that's part of the problem with comedy sometimes because we could just sit here and recite 
the great lines from the film over and over, which there are a great many. There's a hilarious bits, and we've already done a couple of them here, but at that point, you might as well just go watch the film. Uh, comedy is so much harder to praise unless we talk about the kind of technical aspects of them here, which Hawks, of course, does uh, phenomenally, you know, not only just in the, the pacing of the, the humor and the jokes and the direction of the characters, but in the, the editing of it and putting it all together and really making this streamlined... Uh, film that just goes from zero to 60 in like half a second hmm. uh, absolutely and i don't always feel like there's much to say about comedies so we watched it together and a lot of our reactions were like that's just very funny oh it is it's just like every you know like minute or so it was just another laugh you know emoji or whatever and you know just very humorous it's again it's hard to communicate sometimes just how good this is i think i agree with you in the fact that this might be my favorite comedies becoming that it wasn't at first i guess i can i can tell that uh you know because i went through and watched uh, uh many good screwball comedies in the beginning and it was hard for me to adjust to their style at first i was trying yeah. to find the the right work like other ones like i watched bringing up baby before this which didn't work for me as well because of how relentless it was it was just a constant fever pitch of comedy and i've got to revisit it to see if i like it better now that i've wrapped my mind around screwball comedies a bit better his girl friday was kind of the one that unlocked it for me because i felt like there was a good ebb and flow of chaos which is really what these these films are kind of characterized by because they are just so uh insane and absurd in moments you could just be watching and going along with the story and something passes right by you I think it's a very rewarding rewatch. Uh, I find something else every time. Yeah, I think uh, certainly it is, and it's a it's a totally different brand of comedy. But I feel like it's almost the most yielding of comedy styles. Uh, screwball comedies are definitely a very kind of special style, and you've got uh, similar veins. It's funny. We're gonna, I'm going to bring up Billy Wilder one, one last time here. He's come up a couple times, but you know he's done a couple of. Uh, well-known screwballs, but his own style, most famous one being uh, Some Like It Hot as well, mm -hmm. kind of very screwballish, and they usually entail those characters of, uh, you know, it, they're really defined by that uh, masculinity versus femininity battle of the sexes style thing here, which His Girl Friday characterizes so very well. And Hawks was one of the best uh, screwball comedies, I'd say, uh, maybe only second to Preston Sturges. Yeah, I'd say that Hawks just has an excellent sense of humor and wit anyway. That's just implicit in everything he writes. So it works out so well when it's so fast pitch and it's so feverish as it is here. Well, and Hawks is such a maverick filmmaker as well. I'd say of, of any director, almost any, I can't think of anyone who could bounce between genres so seamlessly. You know, the last film we talked about him doing was a grand western, which is the first he ever did of those. But not only has he done that, and great comedy classics, he's done film noir, war films, straight-up dramas, and it's not easy to bounce around like that. Most people just, uh, you know, they stay on their course and do their singular thing. I think with Red River, what we talked about a lot is that he was able to evoke character from someone like John Wayne. Uh, you have the famous quote, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah, so there was, it's actually, there, there's an interesting quote to go along with that, but the, well, he got the, such a great performance out of John Wayne that John Ford, you know, his famous collaborator and discoverer said, I didn't know the son of a bitch could act. Right, which is which is a great bit, but and they always kind of go hand in hand, Ford and Hawks, in that same way. There's another famous uh, quote about them both, and it's they say that uh, John Ford is poetry, but Howard Hawks is prose. I like and, that a lot because what I find in all those movies and their cross genres is they stays close to characters. 
Mm-hmm. And that's definitely the case, and not only with the the singular characters, but as we talked about in Red River, it's that male and female dynamic. He gives uh, a sharp uh, eye to masculinity in Red River, and you get that same sense here with uh, you know using Hilde Johnson as a vessel for his Go Friday. Yeah, and that's a that's a concurrent theme throughout almost all of his films. There is that kind of dynamic between sexes. I think it works out so well here. They're such a good pairing. I don't know how much we've talked about their on-screen chemistry, but that pays off so well, uh, especially in the improv. You could just be all comfortable they are. They're clearly, and it's interesting because Rosalind Russell was like the fourth or fifth choice for Hilary Johnson. They originally wanted someone like Ginger Rogers, no. who would have been really great. I think I think she would have been great, but Rosalind, I mean, I can't imagine anyone else now in the role because she's just so good at it, and she carries it. There's a long stretch of film uh, of the film where Cary Grant isn't in it. He's off you know, doing another thing in this when she's kind of around in the newsroom and she goes to the cells to interview John Queenland's character. And, you know, she still carries it flawlessly. She's so much the uh, the star of the film. And I think that'll help if you... Because the film does kind of change tracks. It starts out more of a Cary Grant film and then it changes halfway through and then they come back around. Yeah, it's something I never even thought of, the, the Grant absence, because she carries it so strongly. Like, I never felt any missing for him mm-hmm. or anything. That was one of the things that held back my opinion on, like, the first viewing when I was still getting a grip on Screwballs. But I also went in expecting a Cary Grant movie, because I didn't know Rosalind Russell was at that point. Yeah, <laughs> and right. that's, that's such a shame to, try, to want to discount her, because she really is the standout of the film. She carries so much of it. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, uh, I really like it. So you came out pretty high this time. Yeah, uh, you know, like I said, the first time, I can't believe I, I ever lowballed it like this. This is a comedy masterpiece to me. It's one oh, of the funniest, if, if not the funniest films of all time. It's so expert. Uh, you know, I've, I've nitpicked it before for obvious continuity issues. I think I pointed out to you at one point, they pulled, like, the drapes down, the, like, the screen down on the windows and then they're up in the next scene, and then they have to pull them up after that in the scene following, and it's just this really like obvious continuity issue that, that bugged me. Mm-hmm. But i just like, I don't care anymore, because the film is just too goddamn good otherwise and too funny. It's not fair of me to to knock it for a little bit of technical mishaps. I mean, you could... I mean, you could say it has pacing issues or continuity issues, but, like, the whole movie is a pacing issue. It's like a in-your-face you, comedy of, like, a different format, and uh, Hildy is different from any female character before her. I really love her. If you can find me another film that's this funny and this expertly crafted and this competent in its uh, in its characters and its performances, then maybe I'll take some umbrage, but I ain't got no complaints right now. It's just one of the goddamn funniest films out there and is really deserving of everyone's attention. It's it's so good and such a classic. This is one of the rare times I've brought us a black and white movie and been like, I feel like we need an evaluation on this. Oh, uh, that, that was the thing is that you pitched this one. This wasn't me talking about like me bugging you. Hey, Calvin, can we watch another old film? No, <laughs> right? this was you're like, I feel like watching his Girl Friday again. And I said, fuck yes. That's just always been in my mind that I, I need to return to it. And I'm so glad I have because this is really a perfect comedy for me. It's maybe top three, four comedies for me. Yeah, I it's definitely for me. It's it's hard because comedy's subjective, but I feel like this one you can't argue with. Uh I could easily watch this four or five times in a year, I bet. Yeah. 
I mean, there would be no problem in doing it. You'd find something new and something fresh. And they talk so fast, you're always going to pick up something funny in it. Oh, there's always a joke you've missed because it's just it goes by so fast. And they don't leave it open for, like, laughter or anything like that. It just it keeps rolling. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's definitely no room for a laugh track here. Someone's already on to the next joke by the time that you've, you've figured out what they were saying. And that's kind of the brilliance of it. Mm-hmm. Just so so expertly crafted, so funny. It's amazing that we have a, a film like this because it's it's relentless. I think that's the best characterizer of the film. I feel like that's a pretty good place to leave it here. I mean, there's not so much to say about a comedy, but uh, I'm very happy that we featured it and that's kind of in our canon. I think we got plenty out of it. Yeah, uh, and and I'm sure there's other comedies we can highlight as well down the road. Even some other screwballs that that we like uh, potentially, but this one's the high watermark for that. And Hawks is just one of our directors that we're going to come back to anyway. So sure, sure, I absolutely think so. Uh, you want to talk about uh, to have and have not next? That's I a, would like your to. boy Hemingway. Yeah, yeah, that's Hawks. That's an interesting yeah. one. So so stay tuned for whenever we get around to that one. We both have, I think, pretty close takes, surprisingly. Bogey, Bogey's great, and it's, it's basically a Casablanca knockoff, but it's a great one. Yeah, I mean, it has interesting ideas, and it, t- it takes interesting turns from Hemingway that I'll probably reread the book, too, and get into it really deep when we get to that. So You know, if you if you get on that soon, then we can make that happen, and I would totally be down to watch that. There's a there's all those, like, all four of those Bogey and Bacall films I'd want to talk about, because Big Sleep is another Hawks one. It's a great film noir one. Then you got Dark Passage, which is that really surprising uh, Delmer Dave's oh, film yeah. that we both really like. And then Key Largo is really cool. Key Largo is a huge inspiration for lots of other... Uh, films very stormy kind of thing going on all of them are great all of them are classic and all are worth talking about and i'm going to push them to get talked about eventually here but there's so many others to talk about we next week we got some other interesting stuff lined up we gotta keep it varied up otherwise we just talk about classic hollywood forever in my insistence yeah we'll talk about a less well-known director uh stanley kubrick that's his name i, I haven't <laughs> heard of him before but um, hopefully we'll see what he's going on yeah I had just seen Lolita last week. That was that was a trip. Yeah, well, tell me more about it next week. We're getting a little started okay. here. <laughs> All right. <laughs>